Welcome to the Equipping You podcast, where our mission is to equip Alliance pastors and leaders to live spiritually healthy lives and lead healthy churches. Equipping You is a ministry of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org. Hey, 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 welcome back to Equipping You Podcast. This is Season 8, Episode 6. Yippee skippy. And uh, two-thirds of us today are coming to you from Reynoldsburg in the Columbus, Ohio area. Allen's in Middletown, Pennsylvania. But Columbus, Ohio is the birthplace of Drew Carey, apparently. Wow. So we Whose say, line is it anyway? Come on down. You're the next contestant on Equipping You Podcast. I'm Terry, Church Ministries Leader for the Alliance. And I'm Alan, the Director of Development in the Eastern PA Alliance District. And uh, with, with us as well is Isaac Charles. He's muted because he's in the mainstream of the flow of the National Office Ooh. of the Alliance. Today, we're talking, Alan, to our good friend, Tom Flanders, who, like Tom Brady, came to his senses and moved from New England to Florida. I, I cannot believe I did not see this coming ahead of time. I, it's hard to argue against that, seeing how he has won a Super Bowl in both. Oh, I'm sorry. He won six Super Bowls in New England. That's right. Yeah, sorry. It wasn't just a Super Bowl. Yeah. His career is not over yet. So anyway, we're talking to Tom Flanders, not Tom Brady. And we're talking to Tom Flanders uh, instead of Tom Brady because we couldn't get Tom Brady to come on. (laughs) Just kidding. We're talking to Tom because he's one of 25 people in the Alliance one of only 25 people in the Alliance who serves as a district superintendent, which is a key role. It's a small group. In our movement, key leadership role. He's been a district superintendent in New England for about 11 years, and now in the Alliance Southeast, Florida, and the Bahamas in uh, the last year. So we, we want to get some insight from Tom about this role. And so appropriately, I say grab yourself a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee because that is Tom's habit in the uh, afternoon. Just rode around the state of Florida with him for three or so days and 2.33 o'clock. Find the Dunkin' Donut and get a cup of coffee. It stuck with him. I have to say that I took a donut out each day too, if I'm I'm honest. So uh, grab yourself a cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, sit back, relax. Here we go. And we're pleased to welcome to Equipping You Podcast, our good friend, Tom Flanders. Tom, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Terry and Alan. A privilege to be with you and the Alliance family, that's for sure. It's great to have you on, Tom. Yep. So... uh, we like to give our listeners the opportunity to get to know our guests a little. So uh, if you would, Tom, give us a snapshot of your journey of coming to know Jesus and then some of your, you know, your journey up until this very day. Yeah, great. Well, um, you know, I certainly didn't uh, grow up in the, as, as a part of the church and I didn't know Christ until a senior in high school. And uh, I often say, as I look back on that season of life and that experience, I was interested at that stage of life in what most high school boys would be interested in. 
That was things that went fast and girls. And uh, the thing that I was most interested in going fast on was a motorcycle. And to support that habit of buying and selling and racing motorcycles, I had two part-time jobs in the small area where we lived. One was at McDonald's and the other was at Pizza Hut because those were the jobs that were available except for working on a farm in the summer. And one day while I was flipping burgers at McDonald's, I looked over to the fry station and there's this really cute girl frying French fries. And I thought to myself, I got to get to know her. And uh, it was uh, sort of a little bit of a maneuvering on my part. I'd get my break when she was taking her break and take my lunch when she was taking her lunch. And after a while, I mustered up the courage to ask her to go out on a date. And she said yes. And I was thrilled. And uh, so there's not a lot of options in the small town where I'm from. So we went roller skating and then I took her to Pizza Hut because I got a discount on the pizza as an employee. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, the truth of the matter is, is I just so enjoyed being with her and, um, she was a person that was full of joy, always smiling, incredibly gracious. And I really hadn't met anybody quite like her. And, uh, so after a while, I, um, you know, uh, just wanted to spend more and more time with her. And uh, she said to me one day, she said, hey, um, would you be interested in going somewhere with me? And I said, sure. And she said, well, before you say yes, you want to know where it is? And I said, sure. And she said, I'd like you to come to church with me. And I thought, well, that seems kind of odd um, to invite a woman <laughs> to go to church. And I, uh, you know, really hadn't been the church going tight. But not only did I go to church, it wasn't long before I discovered her dad was the pastor of the church. <laughs> Set up. <laughs> it felt a little bit that way. But then in time, she invited me to meet her family. And so I'd go to church and I'd go there on Sunday afternoon. And, uh, you know, I think the spirit was working on me at that time. But I certainly didn't know Christ. But I'll never forget the day we went for a walk out in the meadow across from her parents' house. And we were sitting next to a creek. And um, I was talking to her about our relationship. And she essentially said this to me. She said, the truth of the matter is, is you and I really couldn't have a long-term relationship. And I was shocked by that. Yeah. And I was wondering, well, what's that all about? And she said, because the most important thing in my life is not the most important thing in your life. Wow. Brilliant wow. on her part. Good. What and, a wise young woman. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, it can be. Just tell me what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And she said, well, it's not a thing. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And I said, well, I've been hearing your dad talk about Jesus and you talk to me about Jesus. And I think I'm cool with Jesus. He seems like a good guy. And then she went on to explain how it's much more than that. And ultimately, through the influence of her and her family in the first week of September 1984 as a senior in high school, I uh, committed my life to Christ. And to tell you the truth, it was a radical transformation. Wow. And I sensed the Holy Spirit come into my life in that moment, sitting wow. in the car, praying with her dad, wow. who had articulated the gospel to me on this day when he had said, I'm taking Chris back to college. She goes to a small college in Nyack, New York, <laughs> at Nyack College, and he drove her back. And he said, why don't you ride down to drop her off with me and ride back? And it was a little daunting because I knew I was going to be in the car for almost four hours alone with him on the way back. Yeah. 
But the spirit opened my heart. I asked my questions. And at the end, we're pulled over and he's about to drop me off where I lived. And he said, Tom, I think Jesus is drawing you to trust him personally mm-hmm. as your savior and the forgiver of your sins. And uh, he said, you should pray to receive Jesus. And I said, out loud? And uh, <laughs> I do that prayer. And I tell you the truth, the spirit came into my life in that moment. And yeah. I knew something was different. So Great. that's how I came to Christ. Um, and the rest is history. In January of 85, I was on the campus of Nyack College following Jesus and Chris, I think, <laughs> but Jesus first. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, kind well, of wonderful story. What was that small town you were from, Tom? I was from a very small town in upstate New York called Mount Upton, about 500 people, more cows than people. But by the time I met Chris, we'd moved over the hill to the big city of about uh, you know, a few thousand people called Norwich, New York. And I ended up graduating from high school there. Wow. All right. That's cool. It's in here. I thought you always had New England roots, but they're New York roots. They are New York roots, part of the Northeastern District when I yeah. first lived in ministry. Seems yeah. like you should be a Giants or a Jets fan uh, then, uh, Tom. But <laughs> No, don't go there, Tom. Don't don't give in to Terry. Um, I, I won't give in, but, you know, 20, more than 20 years of living in Foxborough, Massachusetts. We all know who I'm a fan of. <laughs> yes, that's great. Let's 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 move forward on that great point you just made, Tom. Uh, so seriously, though, uh, we always like to have fun. And uh, sports usually ends up making us laugh a little bit along the way. But nonetheless, uh, we do love to hear uh, from our guests, like what leaders have influenced them. Uh, so who's been influential in your life after your girlfriend, now wife and her father? Who else has influenced you? Yeah, I would say personally, probably the most influential person on my life um, was my grandfather. Um, I grew up in a single parent home. My parents divorced when I was very young. And so my grandfather, who lived uh, very near to where I grew up, uh, my grandparents, um, he was really the father figure in my life. And so he taught me all those things about how to use a tool, how to drive a lawn tractor, how to drive a car, help me when I went to buy my first car, all those things. So he was the most influential person in my life from that perspective, probably organizationally or from a leadership perspective, uh, spiritually, the most influential person in my life was probably Richard Bush. And um, Richard, for those who in the Alliance family recognize that name, Richard was a superintendent in New England before I was the superintendent in New England. And um, before that, uh, you know, he was the superintendent while I served as a lead pastor in that district. And we lived near each other. I served as part of the Dexcom under his leadership. And he was just a real good soul friend to many, myself included. Yeah, I've heard his name mentioned so many times, influencing so many people. That's great. Thanks for letting us know that. Indeed. Indeed. So, Tom, uh, believe it or not, you had life in ministry before being a district superintendent. You got to think back a few years, but uh, t- tell us uh, what kind of ministry you were involved in before becoming a district superintendent. Uh, before superintendency in 2010, I had um, been in local church ministry and it began in Alliance ministry uh we had finished up at Nyack, Chris and I, and we moved back to upstate New York because Chris went to the State University in Binghamton to do her grad work. And so we began attending an Alliance Church. I got a job managing a CVS pharmacy, which was a job that I actually thoroughly enjoyed. 
And Chris was teaching school, doing her grad work. And it wasn't long after attending that church, they were looking for a youth pastor. And I didn't think at that point I was going to be in the ministry uh, that quickly. And um, they sort of enticed me to come on board. And so I started as a youth pastor part-time. I was only in that role a very short period of time, but I loved being a youth pastor. (laughs) Great experience. Until one day, uh, I was coming back from the Life Conference. I'd taken a youth group to Fort Collins, Colorado, and um, I came back, and there's a post-it note from the senior pastor on my desk that says, hey, you've got a a licensing and credentialing interview with the district superintendent on Thursday. Study up and be prepared. And the pastor was on vacation. I even had to preach that Sunday. (laughs) I didn't know what that was all about. I love it. So I showed up. I did that. And then... um, it wasn't long after that that, quite honestly, there was a, an Alliance Church about 20, 25 miles north of there that was suddenly without a pastor due to some unforeseen and unfortunate circumstances. The lead pastor was gone. And so the superintendent asked me to go up there and start preaching. I did that. In time, I would become the senior pastor of that church. And that was a place where we would stay for eight years, Chris and I. And ironically, it's in the same small town where we were both born. And so it was kind of a going home. And so I pastored that church for about eight years until one day my phone rang and it was a district superintendent. I'd been praying. His name was Richard Bush. I didn't know him at that time. And he said, listen, I got a church in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And I had talked to your superintendent. He thinks you might be a good fit here. And so uh, through a you know, series of discerning events, we ended up going there in December of 99 and stayed there for about 12 years before superintendency. So we were pastoring and Chris and I, I was saying to Chris yesterday, I said, you know, we've been married 36 years this month and 30 years of that has been in Alliance ministry and pastoral ministry or superintendency. So that's kind of our story. And I guess we're sticking to it. (laughs) Yeah. And now here you are uh, at the beginning of your second district superintendency. So tell us uh, how was being a pastor good preparation for being a DS? Well, I I think uh, probably the greatest advantage is it affords you the experience that the pastors you're interacting with are having. You know, I pastor, I was lead pastor of two churches over 20 years. One of those churches, and I hope nobody from that church that's trying to figure out which one it is, is listening, but they probably are. One of those churches was pretty challenging. To be honest with you, it was a church where I would become the senior pastor, and I didn't know that, you know, churches can be riddled with conflict and strife, and I had no idea about any of that. I was just thrilled to be a senior pastor. I got to preach every Sunday, and they paid me. I thought, well, I can't find a better arrangement than that. Now, mind you, they didn't pay me very much, but, but you know, that was it. But in time, I learned that that was a congregation that that was really riddled with a lot of conflict and uh, staying there eight years learned a lot. And I leaned on the superintendent to really guide me through some challenging, you know, times and circumstances. And then I pastored a church for about 12 years after that. And uh, it was a church that, you know, was in plateau and some decline and needed to experience some change in trajectory, but it was, had a really loving, caring atmosphere. And um, we were able to build on that, which was a great foundation. And, you know, I sometimes hear pastors talk about when you look back, say, well, that was the church that was wonderful. We loved it. 
And, you know, I've, I've loved both of those churches, quite honestly, and would be happy if God had left us in either. But we'd probably look back at the second one and say, that was just kind of a dream in many ways. And so I think it's helpful as a superintendent to have had both of those experiences and then to do things like a capital campaign, a building project, supervise staff and work with teams and help churches transition into greater missional effectiveness. And so if you have those experiences, I'm sure that's helpful as a superintendent. No doubt about it. Um, interesting that you say it. the, uh, you know, you went through these challenges, especially in this one church, of course, there are challenges in every church. But when, when I look back over my ministry years, you know, we had a, we had a six and a half year ministry that was our hardest ever. But once I got into district ministry, I'm like, oh, Oh, I see now that that's part of what God used to help prepare us for uh, helping other churches and encouraging other pastors who were going through the uh, the same sorts of uh, things that we experience. So, Tom, as you think of your ministry as a district superintendent, what would you say are the are the two or three most important priorities as you carry out that ministry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, Terry. Um, and now after about 12 years of superintendency, hopefully <laughs> I've given that some thought. The truth of the matter is, is when I began in superintendency, I'll never forget sitting down the first day I was a superintendent and the phone didn't ring. And I convinced one capable staff member from the church I'd pastored to join me at the district office. And I remember walking into her office and saying, do you know what we're supposed to do here? <laughs> 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 and, um, you know, it's kind of like when you're the brand new pastor, nobody's telling you their story yet. And, you know, it takes some time. Now, that doesn't last very long. But it set me on a journey of trying to figure out what exactly does someone in this sort of role or in a district uh, entity or what's often referred to in ecclesiastical language as a middle judicatory role? What does someone in this role do? And so I started talking to people and flying places and trying to learn from people inside and outside the Alliance over those first couple of years. And the person that informed my thinking as much as anyone is a fellow named Russell Crabtree, mm-hmm. uh, who's written a couple of books and has an interesting consulting firm called Holy Cow Consulting. Um, and uh, I read some of his books and I narrowed down some of his thinking. I'll put it in a bit of my vernacular in that I really came to, to, to see that a district superintendent or a district office, if it does what it's supposed to, probably does three things. One is administration. You are part of an organization and there's an administrative component to this role that you have to do. Um, I'm not jazzed about that on an average day. I don't wake up and say, wow, I'm really excited about that. The second thing to do is development. And I look and say, I've got responsibility for the development of those who are leading the church, but I also bear a responsibility toward at least the oversight of the development of the local congregation. If I never give thought to that and the trajectory is always, you know, down into the right instead of, you know, never up into the right. And I know that's language that probably doesn't resonate with everybody. And I don't mean it to sound too corporate. But if I don't think about the development of the leader as well as the whole, you know, I think that would be short-sighted. And the last thing is building structure that elicits engagement for collective mission. Mm. So administration development and then structuring for collective engagement. 
toward like that. mutual missional initiatives. Uh, if I can do those three things well, that will lead to culture that can be sustained after I'm no longer at the table and even after pastors are no longer in those particular pulpits. But there'll be stories and congregations will say, well, do you remember when we all did this together versus going to a church where somebody says, well, do you remember when we used to be this size? And the story is the story of God moving in our midst, not simply inside of our sanctuaries over a very broad geographic region. And so honestly, for the last 12 years, that's sort of uh, sort of undergirded my thinking and um, a lot of my efforts in leadership within a district. Mm. Kind of sets up our next question for you then. So what would you say, you know, looking back over your time as DS in New England, what were some of the things you're most thankful for from that time? If I were to characterize the time in New England, I would say what I'm most grateful for is there was an incredibly collegial spirit among the district and the pastors and congregations within the region. I think that that was true in part as a result of following Richard Bush, who fostered that spirit within the district. And I benefited from that um, sort of spirit, if you will, again, throughout the district. Uh, The other thing I would say I was really grateful for is I had incredibly capable leadership at both the district level, as far as the staff was concerned, and then among uh, groups like the Dexcom, the LOCC, and very capable pastors leading congregations. And so I was really grateful for that. Good experience. Great. That's good. Love it. Collegial spirit. And they so appreciated your ministry, Tom. I had the privilege of chairing the your election to a third term in New England. And you were reelected unanimously. So uh, I, I yet to see that repeated in another district. And I've chaired several of those uh, by now. So you were really highly... Woo-hoo. Loved and appreciated. So that, cost, that cost me a lot of money, Terry. So I just want to know. I've since settled the bill with everyone, but thank you. Passing out those $100 Starbucks cards, or more appropriate for you, Dunkin' Donut cards. Yeah, Dunkin' Donuts. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, get that right up in New England, baby. There you go. You talked about the, the, the things that you were thankful for in your time of serving as a DS. And, you know, it's a it's a very fulfilling role in many ways. It's also a challenging role in a lot of ways. So, so what are a couple of the biggest challenges that you faced in uh, being a district superintendent? I think the biggest uh, challenge or learning curve, if you will, in moving from local uh, church ministry to superintendency is to realize that the proximity you enjoy as a local church pastor to people and how you move something organizationally, that's not afforded you in the role of superintendency. You lead a broad geographic region and your touch is much more episodic than it is consistent. And like most pastors, I think we lead from the platform. We preach the the word of God. We're faithful to the text. We're Christ exalting. Um, but we move people with our preaching and our influence and the conversations that we are afforded on a regular basis. You do not have that in superintendency. 
And so I think the challenges are how do you consistently elicit engagement toward missional effectiveness? And then how do you create alignment with the various initiatives that are present in a district to direct the whole toward the outcomes that you're hoping for that are, you know, multiplication based and they're discipleship focused, they're God honoring, and they establish a culture that can be present after you're gone or the pastor. Mm. That's the real challenge, I think, in superintendency. So proximity matters and it matters immensely, even in superintendency. Boy, that's good. Proximity, love that. Love uh, influencing the culture. Because for sure, whoever follows you is going to change some things that you did, but the culture can live on uh, and how you do it and how you help people look at ministry and how you help people pursue disciple making. That shows some wisdom there from all those years of being a DS, Tom. So thanks for sharing that. When you uh, look at, think about learning curves, (laughs) you know, I, I remember working with Terry, you know, right when he started as DS of Eastern PA. Don't tell those stories, Alan. I I will say, I'm going to, I might be taking a risk here, but I'm going to say this. I remember walking into his office one day, asked him how he's doing about six months in. And he said, "Uh, I feel like somebody threw me into the deep end and I don't know how to swim. Um, (laughs) Maybe you can resonate with that, Tom. Uh, What were some of the biggest learning curves in your transition from pastor to DS? You know, one of those was personal to uh, realize um, immediately the community you enjoy when you're a part of a local church in a week in and week out, that's no longer a part of superintendency, right? You're in church every week. I say to pastors, I probably go to church more than you do, <laughs> and, but I'm not with the same group of people. I'm not doing life with them on a weekly basis. And so you've got to find different rhythms that allow you to remain in community and that feed your soul and don't allow you to become stale or cynical Mm -hmm. in superintendency. Because superintendency, while you do a lot of stuff that you hope is missionally effective, you do deal with, as a friend of mine once said, you deal with the underbelly of the church. (laughs) And I didn't know exactly what he meant, but you do that on a regular basis. And if you're not careful, your own mind and heart will become stale and cynical. And you got to find a way to do that. And so that was one of the challenges, you know, that was more personal, if you will, uh, that we had to sort of figure out. And um, we did, you know, honestly, Chris and I found a leadership community of people who did things similar to what we did, or they led larger parachurch organizations. And we gathered um, with that group on a regular basis every year, a minimum of three times a year for three days. And it was kind of a a spiritual formation community, and we had shared experience, and that was really a a vital part of us remaining healthy spiritually. I think that was one. Yeah, that's good. I can totally relate to that. You served about 11 years as district superintendent in New England, just about have the first year under your belt in the Alliance Southeast. Florida and the Bahamas. What an assignment. <laughs> I've heard that a couple of times. Yeah. I bet you have. I bet you have. I bet you have, yes. <laughs> so uh, what's the same and what's different about these two roles, both district superintendent roles, but what's the same and what's different? Yeah. Well, I, I think if, going back to what I said earlier, if you really believe that what 
an entity like a district office does is administration development and structure for collective uh, mission, then that's probably similar. You, you could you know, say, that's what we do. How you do that is varied from place to place based on the people you work with. And so the differences are real because, you know, culturally it's different. What's different, you know, New England has cultural diversity, but Florida has a greater percentage of cultural diversity. Yeah. Um, there are more than double the number of congregations in the Alliance Southeast than there were in Alliance New England. And so probably uh, double or maybe pushing, you know, two times and a half as many uh, licensed or official alliance workers in the Alliance Southeast than there is in New England. And so that's different. And so structure is different. I'm going from one district where uh, the district office was centralized, if you will. And, you know, the staff was at an office and we worked together and then we traveled out to the district. In the year that I've been in Florida, we've regionalized in a much more definitive way. You know, we have regional directors within geographic areas of the district that have the responsibilities for that area, but they also have a district-wide reach in an area of focus, be it church, advanced church, multiplication, missions, mobilization, or in my case, superintendency, because I oversee a region as well. So I think structure matters. Underlying that is the reason you regionalize in a larger district is because you really believe proximity matters. And if you're going to maintain proximity to build engagement and to support the developmental efforts and pastor people well, then, you know, structure is something you give consideration to. So that, that's been uh, something we've really worked on in the first year. Good. Love it. Yeah, I love that too. Appreciate that so much. So uh, just the timing of your district superintendencies, you ended up spending one year of the pandemic still in New England and another year beginning your ministry in the Alliance Southeast. Wow. What practices do you think we need to leave behind? You know, kind of adaptations we made during a pandemic, but what do you think are some things we need to take with us into the future? Maybe lessons we learned or new practices we picked up. Yeah. And that's the question, isn't it, Alan, today, you know, for those of us who are leading the church, you know, the truth of Mary is, Alan, I think like everybody else, I'm wrestling with that question and what it means. And, you know, it's a Kairos moment in the life of the church and in the history of the church to have gone through what we've gone through as a nation and a world, as we all know, over the last two to three years. And I don't know that we fully know what the outcome of that experience is going to be, but underpinning it all as I've tried to give thought to it and be prayerful about it really is this thought. The church is an incarnational enterprise. The church is an incarnational enterprise. And I, I said to someone recently, I know it's going to sound overly simplistic, but were that not true, Jesus could have written his message in the clouds. Mm. Many years ago, Chris and I were in Florida on vacation. We were facing an incredibly challenging time in our life personally. Nothing to do with our relationship. It was actually a health-related concern. And we knew that upon return from that vacation, it meant a pretty sort of significant medical undertaking at a time of recovery, et cetera. And 
we were just sort of a little bit numb and whatever. And we were at a place on the water and we happened to walk by this little marina and they said, Hey, you can rent a pontoon boat and take it out on the lake and the canal. And I said, to Chris, you want to do it? It wasn't what we planned to do. We said, yeah, let's do it. And so it was just us and our youngest uh, son were on this boat and we rented the boat. I'll never forget the guy saying, well, do you have experience with the boat? And I said, yeah, yeah, we actually own a boat. We own a kayak, uh, but <laughs> that is a boat. That is a boat. It is a boat. He didn't ask me what kind of boat. So we rented the boat. We took it out and we're just, just sort of in a moment of quietness. And the truth matters, we were feeling a little overwhelmed and this biplane flies overhead. True story. And, you know, you don't see a biplane every day. So I'm pointing it out to our son, Chris, look, there's a biplane. And all of a sudden this biplane just does this sort of takeoff and he goes straight up into the sky. And as he does, he releases, you know, this stream of smoke behind the plane. And you realize all of a sudden, oh, he's one of these guys that writes a message in the sky. <laughs> and so he does. And so we just watched, we were intrigued. And um, as clear as day, he just wrote two words in a brilliant blue sky. And the two words were these, trust Jesus. Wow. Mm, wow. And, you know, I looked at Chris and I said, I think, I know he's writing that for a lot of people who are looking up <laughs> in the sky today. But, you know, every once in a while we had that moment where you felt like something was spoken just to you. And, mm -hmm. and it was kind of that moment. And... I, I, I try to remind myself, you know, somebody commissioned that pilot that day to write that in the sky or he decided to do so. But that's not the way Jesus decided to bring his message and his life and his love to humanity. He, he left heaven, transcended the sky, and put his feet on earth. The church is an incarnational enterprise, and whether in the future that's big or small or somewhere in between, or we really learn how to live inside of the social spaces of life with people to bring the gospel, I think that's to be figured out. I'm a little concerned. I don't want to see the pendulum run to a consistent extreme like, oh, we want nothing to do with the big and everything small or own nothing to do with the small and only big. You know, people live in all those spaces, and how can we live in those spaces? Because community is where people grow the most. And I'm all for virtual, but in my uh, maybe more, um, you know, disclosing moments, I've said to Chris, what would happen if everybody shut off the live stream on the same Sunday? Oh. And I know that's not the right thing to do. And I know we're reaching people. But what if one day, you know, we say people can't come into sanctuaries? And we can't imagine that in the West as easily as they can in other parts of the world. But what if one day, what if one day you don't have the platform, the virtual platform that we have today? I got to be able to walk out the door, walk across the street of the lawn and say to my neighbor and friend, you know, there's hope. The landscape's changed, but there's hope. The church is an incarnational enterprise. I know probably I'm taking too much time to answer that question, but I don't know all the answers, but I do know this. Community matters, and it's where I grow the most uh, when I'm sitting with people. And um, so I'm wrestling with it like everyone else, Alan. But the great thing is this, and I said this to a denominational leader in the Alliance recently. I said, you know, this isn't the kind of thing that you ever want to hear a superintendent say, but 
The CNMA is largely a small church movement. It's not made up of large congregations for the most part. And we have large congregations. But one of the great benefits of being a small, smaller church movement is we can pivot a whole lot easier than somebody that has to pivot huge infrastructure. True. And we've shown that we can do it in the last couple of years. Let's pivot all the more. And where there's a catalytic voice or somebody saying, let's come together and do something, let's risk that and allow God to do something in our midst because we ventured things for him that would only be achieved if we trusted Jesus and put all of our resource on the table and said, Lord, the time is short. So we're here and uh, we're going to reach our cul-de-sac, our neighborhood, as well as try to get people to come back into that sanctuary on Sunday morning or whenever it is we gather. Great thought. That was a worthy long answer, Tom. Yeah. So uh, superintendency. <laughs> so uh, one of my Terryisms over the years is that you know in the alliance we're not a loosely knit association of independent churches, but the flip side of that coin is we're all part of the same family. And so collaboration and cooperation together is really a key part of what we do and who we are. So from your perch in the district superintendent chair, Tom, how can pastors and churches collaborate to have a greater harvest impact together? Well, I, I think a couple of things that come to mind, Terry. One is if you are part of a district or a region where there is structure that's being built that um affords you the possibility of uh, engaging with collective efforts, like church planting within a region where we have sister congregations or being a part of, you know, a partnership that really is reaching uh, one of the nations of the world. You, you really should, I think, as a local church pastor and congregation, you should engage those efforts. And if that's out there and being built and, uh, you know, again, afforded you, Give serious consideration to that. And if you think, well, I don't do it because I don't like it, well, then go there and bring change and improvement and uh, make it better. And, you know, you know, the district, I always say to people, I, the district office probably can't facilitate a move of God in your midst, but we can structure so that you'll come together and you'll be cast to a place of depending upon Christ if you venture great things for him that you could never achieve on your own. And then go back to the district and say, pray for me, help find the resource for this endeavor, and then bring whatever you can to the situation because we're going to venture this together for the glory of God and the sake of the church and the good of society. And so engagement, you know, Terry, you, you, you said it a moment ago when you said what the alliance is and you characterized it. You know, we're having lots of conversations in the Alliance family right now about, you know, consequential matters, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but we say all the time that we are a Christ-centered, Acts 1-8 family. Yeah. And I've often been guided in my thinking by a quote from Robertson McQuilkin, the former president of Columbia International University, mm -hmm. used to Columbia Bible College and Seminary. It's where I did my seminary work, who once said this. It's always easier to go to a consistent extreme than it is to live with the tension of a biblical middle. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. And if you can live with the tension of a biblical middle, both structurally, theologically, practically, you can do great things together missionally. 
Yeah. Love this. That's kind of what hopefully drives my thinking and the structure and the things we do as a district. Yeah. That that McQuilkin quote will preach and is very alliance. Uh, It kind of describes who we are and how we function for 130 whatever years. So it's rich. Tom, we've really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Of course, uh, you and Alan and I are all, we're all at one time nerds, uh, (laughs) Northeast Regional District Servants, and we would uh, meet Mm, I guess I'm the only one that still is a nerd. You are? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to leave that right there, Alan. Yeah, I appreciate that, Tom. (laughs) I I knew if I didn't say it, somebody would. So uh, it's been great to renew the friendship in this way and you've offered us some great insights we really appreciate your time thanks for taking the time to be with us today yeah thank you gentlemen absolutely so great to talk to tom allen enjoyed it absolutely uh, appreciated his insights on being a district superintendent did you hear something in particular that you said wow uh, that's very helpful in understanding the role talk about proximity being important uh, for a DS, but also local church ministry and the idea of really remembering from the pandemic that uh, Christianity is essentially incarnational, that it happens, that change happens best uh, in community and that we need to make sure we take lessons that we learned about community from the pandemic into the future. Uh, uh, That matters most and it's great. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Uh, I'm not surprised at how insightful and thoughtful it was. Totally agree. And uh, so our listeners enjoyed it. We appreciate you uh, being on the journey with us in uh, Equipping You podcast. And so uh, for now, we'll say uh, so long, but uh, looking forward to being with you next time when we will have with us uh, Mark Tobby, one of our uh, Alliance International workers who absolutely give us some insight on what that is like. So uh, what a great from DS to IW. What a great combination. This is gonna be fun. It is. So meanwhile, keep the faith. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Equipping You podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our channel. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information on this podcast and other ministries of the Alliance, visit equippingyou.org.